Hello, and welcome to Still Digging, presented by the Archeo RPG Collective, the bi-weekly YouTube live stream where a group of archeologists get together to discuss archeology, span role-playing games, and pop culture. The audio was taken from the live stream. We apologize for any audio hiccups. Now, enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to episode two, two, of Still Digging, presented by Archeo RPG. Make sure I'm mute. Oh, I am not mute on my other side. There we go. I'm professional here. And speaking of professionals, I am once again joined by a panel of professional archaeologists uh, who are going to discuss, you know, issues of archaeology, gaming, tabletop role-playing games, and other sorts of gaming, stuff like that, general culture stuff, and... Um, whatever else comes to mind in this next hour to hour and a half-ish. It's a holiday week here in the United States, so we're, we're sort of in a short-timers mood. So once again, let, I'll let the panel introduce themselves. I guess I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am Tom Cuffertson. I am a, I guess a field director, project archaeologist, whatever jargon you want to use there um, for a CRM firm in Northern Virginia in the DC area. I do some uh, nonprofit work with AITC and I play Dungeons and Dragons sometimes. And we're going to talk about that, I think, a bit today. Alma, you want to go? Uh, I can go. Sure. I'll jump in. Uh, hi, my name is Alma. I, I bristle a little bit at the title of professional because I'm technically a, an academic. I'm currently in my first year uh, PhD at uh, Hokkaido University in Japan. Um, my background is in public archaeology, so the, the interfacing between the, the public and, and the professional sphere, whatever iteration that takes. I am also a bit of an artist on the side, and so uh, I like to draw things from fantasy to real life as well. So with that, I'll pass it on. Oh, I, yes, duh, I'm starting. My name's Sarah. Um, I'm obviously spacey today for some reason, and I am the host of the Archie Fantasy podcast. Uh, I run the Archie Fantasy's blog, and... I'm a professional archaeologist. I do CRM. I dig holes in the field. And I also try to do a little bit of public education and reaching out to people and talking about archaeology and pseudo-archaeology and the intersection thereof. I also play, I'll play almost any role-playing game if it strikes my fancy. And right now I'm playing D&D with this lovely group. Yay. And I guess finally we come back to me. I'm uh, Bill Ochter. I'm a professional archaeologist. I'm on the interwebs as Archeo Thoughts, when I'm not tweeting, posting pictures of my cats, or play, or dungeon mastering for this group. I'm also um, on my own channel, currently beginning the process of a uh, archaeological reconnaissance survey of Fallout <laughs> Three of the Capital Wasteland. So uh, check yeah, out on that. Uh, for, for uh, how well that works as a one-person project, because I can tell you, archaeology is not a one-person project. No matter what you see on TV, and there's always that one person, or when you get to university and that one professor tells you what you're doing, it's a group effort. Um, so it's going to be interesting uh, when what it really is just a one-person project. So uh, 
Bill, can I interject real quickly? Can we sure. get a link to the YouTube as well? Because I'm not seeing it up on my YouTube feed just yet. Okay. Um, doo -doo 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 I will copy it to you. Oh, that is the other thing. Well, if you're watching this, you do you know this by now, but Archeo RPG now has its own YouTube channel. Yay! Thank you very much. So yeah, so all things Archeo RPG, first and foremost, is going to be this show, Still Digging. Um, eventually, within the next month or so, you'll begin to see more formalized things for rituals and roles or whatever the final name of our live play Dungeons and Dragons uh, game is. The beauty of watching this show is you're going to see us sort of make that sausage of uh, 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 when we get that game world together. So you watching now in the early shows, you're getting behind the scenes footage for when we go to the real D&D &D world. So better than Patreon. Mm. We may have that soon. So when you say that, it's not as good as Patreon. Join Patreon, but we'll let you know when that happens. Can I can I qualify something again real quick? I keep jumping in here. No, no, um, please. No, no, it's okay. Earlier, earlier in my introduction, I said I, I bristled with the fact that the uh, the title of professional that just meant more so much the fact that I don't feel professional anyway. Now that there is a huge divide between professional and academic, just that I myself do not quite feel as qualified as some of you who had a lot more time uh, in the professional realm. I guess. No, no, we could we could we could definitely someday even or even right now discuss the long-standing uh, archaeological thing, which seems to pass through archaeologists a lot. Imposter mm. syndrome seems mm. to be very prevalent among the archaeological communities. Is CRM even archaeology? No, we're very robbers. Um, I think if you're getting <laughs> Man, I can't remember the last time I even got near a grave. If you are mm. getting to do archaeology and you went through the hoops required to get your fancy pieces of paper, I think you qualify as a professional. You know? <laughs> Regardless yeah. of where, where you end up in the archaeology spectrum, mm -hmm. I think if you have even a BA after your name, you could probably call yourself a professional. Yeah. What did you say, Tom? Me? Yeah, you said something. Oh, no, yeah. If you're if you have a degree and and you get paid for it, I think you're you're a professional. Every every other field does it that way. So why not? Are we gonna sit here and ignore the fact that Tom doesn't have a beard anymore? Hmm? That's like spoilers. <laughs> That's part of the uh, still digging drinking game. Is like what has changed <laughs> since the last time? Like I've, like, like I've completely like I've completely rearranged my background from the last time. Mm. You have to watch the first show and the second show. I'm not going to give any <laughs> anything away. <laughs> It'll grow back in like a week or two. Sorry, <laughs> right. stay gone for long. <laughs> I was like, what the hell happened? And I was like, we could make this a drinking game. We can we can all take bets on whether or not I'm going to have a beer, and I'm the only one that's really going to know. <laughs> I have to find something to drink. <sighs> So anyway, professionals versus non-professionals. I don't know. Now, to be fair, this does kind of, especially within the world of CRM, um, this does kind of get tricky on projects which have more public facing on it when you're bringing in volunteer labor and volunteer crew and staff. There is definitely a tension that can be, can be built when it appears that maybe a PI or, or a firm or, or whoever's running it 
is bringing in volunteer work of maybe underqualified people as as cheaper labor rather than using professionals because you'd have to pay them for it. So that's that. I, I I don't know how real that is. Actually, I know that it's it's not as real as the perception is. The perception is is stronger than than the reality of that. Doesn't the uh, Secretary of the Interior protect us from that kind of a thing? No, um, you can. You need only one person running the field crew, who is SOI Secretary of the Interior qualified in the United States, to run that field <laughs> crew. But everybody else on that field crew can be amateurs because they're under the supervision of a professional archaeologist. That explains a few of the people I've worked with over the years. That the SOI qualified individual only has to be there seventy five percent of the time. That too, they don't have to be there the entire time either. Um, so that's especially in the world of commercial archaeology, it's it's a, it gets it gets to be a much grayer area. Now, so, okay, so then that does actually open up a unsavory conversation to be had. Not that I have encountered it very frequently, having someone in the field who was not qualified to be there, in my opinion. Um, and by that, I mean they have their BA um, in anthropology, archaeology, or history. But what do we do with the person who's got a degree in biology who's been digging for 20 years? Yeah, I mean, we have definitely have a professionalism problem in the United States uh, when it comes to archaeology. It's, it's built upon this sort of archaic academic model, for lack of a better term, and no offense to Hama. <laughs> uh, um, where, where, you know, PhDs are the highest part of the mountain. And the only way you can show your qualification is with your different levels of degrees to go upon it. You know, work uh, and, and ex experience on the job uh, doesn't qualify as, as much as having certain degrees and certain other sort of qualifications after your, after your name. It's all about those letters after your name that matter. I'm really tired of these letters after people's names. No offense, Alma. I know you're <laughs> just digging in today, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not the only one. I got MARPA after mine. Me too. You know, I'm going to have an MA soon, and I am not sure I want that RPA. And for those who don't know, RPA stands for the Registry of Professional Archaeologists in the United States, which is an informal cool. professional organization. It's not quite like a CPA. Uh, certified public accountant, which is one would absolutely have to need, need to be a professional accountant in the U.S. It's more of a suggested thing and in some circumstances helps employers and agencies or people who are hiring archaeologists to hopefully trust that you kind of know what you're doing. That would, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. <laughs> the only thing that I think I get out of it is that it's, it's, it's supposed to hold and anybody who is a registered professional archaeologist RPA is supposed to be held to a certain standard of ethics. However, like most heritage, cultural resource law and regulation, there is absolutely no teeth to that holding it to a certain law or ethics. It's, well, we'll kick you out of our club if you don't follow our rules. But that, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really carry the weight that it feels like it should. It also creates a system of elitism within the CRM field that we do not need. And 
it's gatekeeping at a very basic level because there are people who are qualified by the standards of the RPA who cannot obtain an RPA by the RPA's own standards because they don't have certain magical pieces of paper. And it completely, in my opinion, this is my opinion, let me throw that out there first. I think it delegitimizes experience and places value on education over know-how. I realize that the states have different standards for how you can qualify for your RPA and you have to have so many hours doing this and so many hours doing that. Most of them are supervisory hours and I'm aware of that. But at the same time, I can go through an entire master's program, graduate without ever doing anything beyond my field school and qualify to be an RPA and have never dug a day in my life. So, and you get people think that the RPA is a legitimate organization and they're not illegitimate, but they think that they're a more, I don't don't know, um, yeah, a more weighty organization than they actually are. And so you get organizations that won't even look at archaeologists unless they have an RPA after their name. And unless you've got a master's degree, you can't get your RPA. So that disqualifies everyone with a bachelor's degree who might be as qualified, if not more qualified than the MA with an RPA. So that's my, that's my, that's my soapbox. I'll get off now. (laughs) Did did they get rid of the, so there there used to be, at least when I was, before I did my master's, so not, not that long ago, like, uh, oh, uh, (laughs) six years, six years. I guess a minute ago, but not that long. They used to be that as long as you had a year of supervisory experience in the lab and in the field, and you have written a report, and you can cite that report. So, like, a, a, you have the whole the whole idea for for the RPA is that you can follow research to conclusion, which is why they require a thesis. Oh yeah, uh, we started on the thesis. It, it used to, yeah, and well, you used to be able to register with the RPA without a master's degree, as long as you have had, you know, supervisory experience and a thesis. And I think they had, for a minute there, it used to be that you had to have the supervisory experience and a report, regardless of whether or not you had a master's degree. I think you're talking about sort of another sort of problem is the letter of their own bylaws and the actions of actually getting, like I, cruised through soon after I, because I'd already been working in CRM. Um, I did my master's on a, a project I had done in CRM, which I co-wrote the report on. So when it came time from after I hit my <laughs> finished my master's, I just gave my master's. I had this whole report where we were at a small firm. So I, I was helped out in the lab, helped write the report, helped do all sort of all those little technical uh, areas on there. I did so I did a pre- help with some of the prehistoric analysis, did some help with some of the uh, historic analysis. I did the cat help with some of the cataloging on it. We were a really small firm. So, you know, I breezed through uh, RPA, no problem at all. I say this now and they're going to revoke my stuff. (laughs) Uh, But I know people who've like, you know, written dozens of reports, have an MA for like five years or so and can't get through and took forever to get through. I know one woman I know took three years uh, to get through, and she was more qualified for me from me from the very be- wow. moment I met her. <laughs> and, and I can say some very unsavory speculation as to why that took her so long. 
Oh, I've, 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 I was thinking those things too. Nothing, nothing confirmed. Nothing, nothing could be substantiated. Right, exactly. But I can think some unsavory thoughts, but there's, I'm but there's an appearance of it. But I also know a guy who's been working in CRM for 20 years. Is probably the best field director I know. Definitely one of the best report writers I know. Has written. I couldn't even count how many reports from phase one to phase threes all the way through doesn't have his RPA and it's just now crawling back to starting some sort of, you know, grad school at almost 50 just to get his letters because he's at the point now where he realizes he can't work in the field anymore. And that's he needs those letters so he can get his RPA and his SOI qualification so he can get out of the field. And that, yeah, that's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. I mean, one of the best field directors I know only has his bachelor's and I, I would work for him in a heartbeat. He's a fantastic director. He knows what he's looking at. He knows what he's doing. Again, I'm sure he's written several reports with his name on it. I mean, it's ridiculous. And he doesn't qualify for RPA because he doesn't have the magical letters after his name. And and, and this is coming from someone who's working towards getting my MA, specifically because I was getting forced out of the field because with a BA, I can't progress. And I've been digging long enough that I don't want to be a shovel bomb anymore, you know? And so, and then I got stuck in the program I'm in, but you know, whatever. Don't do my program, y'all, ever. <laughs> Wait till you have the degree in hand, then say. <laughs> ah, give it shit. Bring it. All I've got to do is go, Amma. I was going to say, for anybody who's interested, I'm going to drop the RPA link in the chat, so that way, you know, you can go and and see some of the qualifications and whatnot. I like that Amma's like. The adult in the room. <laughs> yeah, like, clearly have a responsible party here. And so all of this is a, a long-winded way. This is the only archaeological way of doing this. Uh, to introduce <laughs> a discussion that occurred on Twitter about more than a week ago now. It's the twenty-second uh, when this first occurred, when the uh, National Trust of Scotland archaeologist posted a, a very nice picture. Some work being done at Weaver's Cottage. So it's a great picture. And I will try to, I'll, I'll link that one in the show notes. I won't link what we're talking about afterwards in the notes. Um, I can pull it up on my screen share as well if you'd like. Okay. It's in the, it's in the link now. It's a very beautiful picture of this outdoor setting. And, you know, it's typical Scotland. It's super, super green um, everywhere. There are these perfectly square units. I mean, I'm looking at the way they removed the sod and they took the sod out in perfect chunks and then created it to the side in a perfect square. I can't get text to do that. <laughs> and <laughs> you see a group of people, a mixture of um, adults and young children uh, on their hands and knees uh, working these particular sites. I look at this picture and I'm like, this is what public engagement looks like. Well, apparently, there was a professional archaeologist on Twitter. Um, I will not name names or directly link to that because we're not going to disparage them. We're just going to dunk on them anonymously. We're subtweeting. We're totally subtweeting. I hate subtweeting. Well, that's what we're doing for the next 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Throw a pair and call them out. Wow, those really are nice units. Well, I think enough people called them. I think enough people called them out in the. Uh, in the following chat, that's what got my attention. Uh, was sort yeah, of everybody right. I know dunking on them. But they put a, a response to that picture you're seeing there. 
Well, um, I'm gonna go ahead and talk for a second so everybody can see it. Uh, this is the image that I found on Twitter. I just copied and pasted, and there's the link to their Twitter account as well up top. If you if you click on her, it should hold her picture up for a bit. Um, this isn't in, in Photoshop at the moment, so <laughs> I cannot. Can we just it. talk about how nice those sod cuts are? Seriously, <laughs> those sod cuts are super super nice. They're they're so Look pretty. At that. Those of you unfamiliar with archaeological excavation, we really like square holes. That's what you get with a sharp shovel. That's all I gotta say about that. It's Unless so, they do uh, actually saw to it. But they're like the sod is like cut out and then like laid perfectly next to the units too, which is so cool. <laughs> and also, if you, if you if you're looking at that, the sod has just been removed. That soil is almost black. Right. That is there. that is modern topsoil. Yeah. Yeah. That is a at best a disturbed context that we're dealing with here. And by disturbed, I mean it, it's a mixture of potentially older items and things dropped last week um, mm -hmm. are all going to be found uh, within that really dark soil. So we're um, there at let you're talking like 300 years worth of stuff. So could all be occupying the same. There could be a plastic pencil and a you know nail oh from God, the fifteenth century in there. So that gets puts a little context to it. So like I said, a professional archaeologist decides to respond to this with a with a tweet. Children and untrained now mind you, there's no article attached to this picture. It is strictly a picture that says lots of fine <coughs> already this morning. There there is no description of what's actually occurring here. I'm like, can you just like circle the sod? Just real quick. She grew up to do it. I had, I had an arrow up earlier, but I, okay. I removed it. Let me see if I can highlight that. Then. Children and untrained adults shouldn't be doing archaeology. They should be given training sites, not real sites. Would children be allowed to train doing real brain surgery? Archaeology is a destructive <laughs> science and should be done by professionals. They I really put that in squares. Look at it. You can see. Okay, I'm sorry. No, no, <laughs> no right? <laughs> that is, that is, an, that is an awesome thing. I'm, I'm taking it off so that we all don't keep getting distracted anymore. Okay, yeah, sorry. I'm not <laughs> this is basically archaeological porn at this point. It really it is. Kinda it's, is. It's so good. All right, I'll um, take it off as well. So, <laughs> so that, so you know, it's a classic sort of almost troll response but what makes it sort of worthy and why we're bringing it up here is that this wasn't a random person just trying to take a dig at archaeologists this was a fellow professional yeah who was making this observation An and academic i think i believe so yeah i don't actually know yeah she's... i don't believe i don't believe they were an academic i think they were a field yeah i think they were field i think but they're like um not American feel. Yeah. They're they're British. They're oh, wait, wait, wait. Are we talking about the original picture? Or are we talking about the poster? Oh, the original oh, posters yeah. actually has their claiming they're from Maryland. Oh no, I hide my head in shame. Oh no. Yeah. So well, this is this is to be fair. This is a con. This is a, a conversation I've had on multiple occasions, um, right. especially with uh, younger archaeologists you just getting into the field they feel like it's difficult to find a job and they're not getting paid very well which is true sometimes especially when you're first coming out and I, the the argument it generally goes along the same lines as that but it's instead of 
they're ruining the archaeology. It's all the volunteers are taking up the jobs that we could be potentially getting as professionals. To which my counter argument is generally the projects that they're working on are usually projects in in parks or in estates or something like that that would not be funded otherwise enough to to actually hire professional archaeologists to run the entire excavation. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to have like uh, ex excavations being conducted with exploited labor, that's called field school, where you get a group of people to pay you to come out and uh, excavate under grueling conditions, and, and and you can treat them much worse than like kids out there in the field. <laughs> you, you, can like, them, you can treat them like crap, and they're going to pay you for it. Now that's how you do exploitive I, archaeology. I've and we'll talk about how great our experience was. I've and I've helped direct. A third, well, third and fourth. I did not feel exploited, but yes, it would have been nice if I didn't have to pay, you know, two thousand dollars for the privilege to dig holes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it's interesting that the first thing I thought when I read that poster's responses to the original tweet, there's a Tumblr feed. I think it's literally called "Archaeology Sucks," and. <laughs> The only reason I know about it is because uh, the the person who runs the Tumblr blog rescued a kitten from the field, and they named the kitten Flake. They had several pictures of tiny little Flake out in the field because they, they kept taking the kitten back to the area they were working in in the hopes that it would reunite with its mother, and it just never happened. But one of the pictures they have it's it's little baby flake with a wrist um reflector wrapped around their body because the cat the kitten's so small but they need to be able to see where she is at all times so they put their reflective tape on this kitten and it's it's an adorable fucking picture the kitten <laughs> is no longer a kitten it's a full-blown cat now but there was somebody who responded to one of the pictures and they were just like, oh my God, I can't believe you allowed an animal on an archaeological site. They're going to contaminate everything. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what I do for a living? I lick rocks, lady. Hardly <laughs> <laughs> an issue. Still don't see the point in that. But Darn it, my... Me. <laughs> my uh, archaeology memes in the basement or I'd, or I'd be showing it right now. Hmm. It's a little Crap. macro meme of Archeo Kitty in a in a in a in a one by one. Up the walls. Ah. It's one of my favorites. It is, yes. Wait, there's a Twitter. What? What? Oh, no. there was a meme for Archeo Kitty. Yeah. Oh, it's also somebody's Twitter handle. Yes, mm. it is. Oh, I don't know who they are. I'm sorry if we <laughs> uh, we barged into your stuff, but uh... no. It's Please join us here on on the show, and we'd be happy to talk to you about your Archeo kitties. Where's my Archeo kitty? He's so cute. I love this picture. <laughs> anyway, but it's just funny to me how there there seems to be like two minds in archaeology, and you get you get the sacred, holy, pristine site mentality. I think a lot of times from like I hate to say this, sorry, Ama, academics. And you get the ass spit on it and walk away from the CRM people. I think that's just because we work faster because we have to get through more. So it's like we're not amazed by every little grain of salt that we find. 
so this this whole concept of oh the animal will destroy the site or oh these three kids who are clearly working with two adults one of which is obviously supervising them they're going to destroy everything in archaeology ever and it's just like it's fine it's really fine honestly kids like that kind of stuff because a they can get dirty and b they're doing science it's really okay you know can I can I qualify that? And the only reason, um, well, I shouldn't say the only reason, but one of the main reasons I, I do want to do that kind of segues into a topic that I wanted to talk about, which is if you look at some of the respondents there, you're looking at people from the UK and Europe versus the US as well. And I think when you talk about public and community-based archaeology, you're looking at two very different realms of practice. And it's not something that's just limited to the professional realm, but is actually really well studied and well integrated into both the professional and the academic spheres of archaeology in the UK. Not that I feel like I need to defend some people, but I do know some of the people involved in in, in that community. And I think that they are also, I, I think they responded in a certain way because I think there is a huge difference in, in practice. So I... I don't know if I would consider myself a community archaeologist, but the stuff that I do with with archaeology in the community um, is definitely geared toward that community integration into archaeology and archaeology into into the community. It's it, the the things that they were a lot of the reasons that that were given for why this is going to ruin the archaeology just fall real flat with me because a lot of it is just having proper supervision and, and properly training your volunteers. So I've worked, I mean, I've worked for Fairfax County Park Authority. I've worked at Mount Vernon. I worked at Montpelier. I've done stuff with, you know, volunteer groups all over Northern Virginia and the DC area. And it's, I, I, I never actually worked with volunteers on a CRM site because most of the most of the stuff that we do is either in places you don't want volunteers wandering around in or or is just we don't like we just don't have a time frame that would allow for volunteers to work with us but as long as you have like it's usually like one archaeologist to two to three you know volunteers or students and in any any field school is exactly the same way where it's one or two students in a unit and 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 one supervisor maybe supervising up to four units at most, but they're, but they're like, there's somebody helping them along the way. And I, I think it's just very, it's very, I don't see the point or the difference even between having an adult volunteer versus a college student with a degree. They have, they both have exactly the same amount of field experience. And I think another thing we're, we're, we were sort of missing, even from this conversation, except for maybe Tom's experience is that most of the responses I saw were coming from public archaeologists, those people who occupy the space between the academic world and the commercial world, typically working for the nonprofits or the foundations or the, the, the historic homes or, or in places like that. And in, in their profession, the public engagement is vital to their existence. If you don't get buy-in from the public, your, you, your reason they exist is to have a communications with the public. And if you are not engaging with your public, you you don't exist anymore. So you are going to bring out small children and the inexperienced. And, you you know, it looked from the picture, just, you know, a quick judgment. There looked like there was like one, they were in a top part, which isn't as, that critical. 
two, it appeared to have a lot of supervision going on there. So this is the time to have, you know, bring in a small child, let them get touched, close and touch this stuff. I mean, I, you know, one of the best experiences when you go to a museum is when you actually get to touch a thing. So you you get to see the fossil on the wall, but that little exhibit on the wall with a little piece of plastic with a hole in it, and you can reach your hand in and maybe touch a bone or something. That's the most fulfilling thing in there. So, you know, having that level of engagement uh, is critical to sort of like, one, bring in the public today, and two, create that sort of next generation of, of, of of kids who become young adults who actually want to do this profession for a living. I think it instills a sense of respect for it too. And um, I think all, I mean, no offense, Tom, I think all CRM people are community archeologists to a degree because we are the first group of archeologists that most communities will even interact with. Sometimes we're the only group. And And it is technically written in the National Historic Preservation Act that we have to serve a public interest. That is also true for us, yeah. Right, those are, we're, we're talking, Talking two different things here. So. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. I one of my biggest, one of the biggest things I harp on is archaeologists need to be more active with the community, and that's because of all of the study and the work I do with pseudoarchaeology and the fringe okay. and alternate histories and alternate archaeology people. And the the main thread there is. Archaeology tapped out somewhere around like the 60s and the 70s, and we just like threw our heads into a hole and pretended like the other, the outside world didn't exist. And uh, because of that, people think aliens are real. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's pretty much a direct correlation there. Fight me on it. I, pro- you know, bring it. <laughs> but if we're not willing to, when we're digging or interacting, if, we, if we're not willing to interact with the public when we're out digging, we're not doing anybody any favors. And if we're going to fall back on that weird elitism thing where no one can be on the site. Okay, let me let me explain this to you. Your site probably isn't that important. And having somebody come up and ask you a question or remove the top layer of dirt with you probably isn't going to screw anything up because i know people who have been working for years who can't keep their damn walls straight so (laughs) that person is somehow not fucking things up and you're worried about the kid who's like so excited to be digging that they're you know microscopically scraping their wall i'd rather have the excited kid than the guy who's decided that a 45 degree angle is the same thing as 90. so I, I mean, oh, I've I've man. had that sentiment again. I like to qualify everything right now, just because, like I said, the the academic dig that I've worked on for the past six years now has integrated the the public, both yeah. um, adults and kids, into its its kind of scheme for the summer. And in most cases, it is just a kind of hands on bringing out some some artifacts, but they do get the opportunity to go in. And a lot of times they've actually selected, we've, we've got about a meter of sterile so- soil in, in kind of the middle of the context there. And we allow them to kind of go in and, and monitor them very closely. It's normally not, it's not quite one-to-one, I'd say it's like one-to-three about or so. And and my advisor and the, and the supervisor of the site is very much of that same opinion, where he's like, I've seen professional archaeologists who've been at this for years, you know, miss really important 
fines. And so at that, at the end of the day, it's it's just why not give you know people that are interested this opportunity to come in and 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 try it. If you've got somebody supervising what they're doing, there's no reason not to have people come in and try their hand at it. I mean, mm-hmm. worst case scenario, you put somebody at the screen and you have somebody supervising the screening. You know, nobody wants to screen anyway because reasons. Oh, and the kids actually quite liked it, let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> Outside the field are like, yeah, I want to screen the dirt. That's where all the crap is. And it's like, yes, then, <laughs> Padawan. And so you just need somebody to stand there at the screen and make sure they're not throwing things away. But shit, I'd rather they keep every rock they find than, you know, yeah. some people who are up there and are like, eh, it's not artifacty enough for me and and toss it over their shoulder. Anyway. And, and this this kind of got brought up and uh, I think we're probably trying to move on to the next topic, but <laughs> this kind of got brought up before, but um, with, with what Sarah was saying. But, you know, if if we're not doing you know, any of this public outreach and nobody cares about this stuff and nobody's going to want to pay for it. And then it falls out of regulations and then we don't have a job anymore. And this is actually, so last year at SHA, uh, I helped organize a panel with, with Alexander Jones from archaeology in the community, specifically on this topic about what kind of, what kind of programs and strategies were helping and which, which ones were kind of falling flat and we're actually doing again doing it again this year at SHA. I've actually I'm gonna put in the chat. I just posted the YouTube link for the for the stream of it, but we're gonna do it again. We're gonna do we're gonna stream it again. We're also gonna take questions from Twitter and, and from the stream if we can. And it's I mean it, that 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 engagement is is really the only reason we're here. And I mean it's I mean it's it, I'm I, I'm a huge Carl Sagan fanboy for a reason. Like it's it's if you can't teach critical thinking to just the average person, then what's I mean, what's the point? Like, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, Sagan was one of my favorite Sagan quotes. Goes something along the lines of, you know, if the people who know the stuff aren't there to teach it, then the common man's going to fall back on the false prophets. And it's just like that's exactly what's happened. Because you can ask people to name an archaeology site that they are aware of. I bet most of them can't. Um, ask them if the pyramids were made by aliens, and they would probably either say yes or waffle on it. I don't know, man. Maybe I don't know. I saw this show this one time on the History Channel. Mm-hmm. That was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So, so with all that, I think we need to go to a much lighter note at this point. It's been sort of like, you know, somewhat serious now for the last few minutes. Uh, oh, so, yes. So I think, we, I think we should talk about something fun, you know, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, some D&D action here. I mean, that's what we came here for. Sure. We're here for some of that D&D stuff. I want to hear about, like, elves and orcs and stuff like that. So let's talk about racist orcs. <laughs> wait, wait, I don't know. Like, are they the racist or... Well, they're racist stereotype. There you go. (laughs) So there's a series of articles, two articles now at this point, published by James Menendez uh, Hodes, discussing sort of the uh, sort of the origins of orcs, which sort of first appear in sort of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, and then get adapted as a critical point into the world of uh, 
of Dungeons and Dragons later on. The first part of his uh, articles, his first article really, is focusing on sort of the the initial myth of this, uh, the orcs, and it coming through sort of at the beginning of the 20th century, sort of you're coming out of this Victorian high colonial period uh, in Britain, you are, you're, you're dealing with the Great War, but you're also dealing with sort of uh, embedded stereotypes in, in Britain at that time, especially about uh, invaders from the East, going back, harkening back to, to, to people like uh, Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan from there and if you read the descriptions of the early orcs let me let me make sure um he puts it in a quote directly from tolkien from one of his letters letter number 210 describing the orcs the orcs are definitely stated to be corruptions of the human form seen in elves and men they are or were squat broad flat-nosed sallow-skinned with wide mouths and slanted eyes in face degraded and repulsive versions of the quote, I believe is added by the author to Europeans, least lovely Mongol types. So obviously in, in that writing there, evoking sort of very race science, uh, late 19th century uh, ideas of Caucasoid, Mongoloids, Negroids, um, that, you, that doesn't fall too far from our own domain. It's, it's very much Physical, uh, you know, early physical anthropology is very much of this field. We actually give the names to these things on here. So uh, it's, it's one of the, why the interesting reasons that sort of caught my attention on this is sort of like, hey, our stuff's convoluting together in the worst way. My, uh, my human osteology books still have the terms um, Negroid, Mongoloid, and Caucasianoid in them. So I have those- professionals those at, at museums who still use those terms just fyi we don't use those terms anymore and if we are we need to stop <laughs> yeah we need to stop they are still using those terms <laughs> what about forensic anthropologists so I, I i don't know for sure but do i mean i i i've well i've heard some stories about doug Owsley, but um <laughs> trying not to bring his name around i was dancing i was dancing no i'm gay. hey we you talked about this before stream we're running towards the cultural fire that we probably started. <laughs> what was I told the other day? I don't. It's it's more ethnicity. When the word is ethnicity now, not race, because um, race is a social construct and complete bullshit. In a certain way, race is a fun thing to talk about. I have my serious lighting on me now. Whatever. I don't care anymore. But uh, you just say white, black, and Asian now. You don't say Negroid and Caucasianoid and Mongoloid anymore. I had to actually think about it. I don't know if white, black, and Asian is any really better, but they're more recognizable terms for the modern era. And they are, I don't know, less negative? I know Asian really isn't the best word to use because it really does kind of just lump like a third of the planet into a group. It's a very broad stroke. Yeah, it really is very broad. But I think actually, like, didn't they start breaking down? Um, haven't they started breaking out Native American now too? Like that's its own category. It, I don't know. It's been forever. It since depends on what, what country you're in and which department you're in and what mm-hmm. government agency you're in and all that kind of good stuff. 
Because the books I have, like I said, my books are old enough that I think my books were printed right before the big theoretical shift away from using these terms to using new terms and away from the whole concept of race and instead we're using ethnicity. So that's about who my my teacher right. But the 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 critical thing, like to go back to orcs, you know, when you need to talk serious stuff now, we we're talking orcs. Uh, I keep talking about you know fantasy stuff like archaeology. Uh, serious business time. We need to talk orcs. Is that orcs? And I guess the first, I mean, I could get jump at however we want to. We can jump back and forth between both articles. Uh, the second article gets much more into things like D and D and sort of modern interpretations of it, which takes it away from sort of uh, an, an Asian stereotype into a, a, a nice American uh, black stereotype. Uh, so it's sort of a, you know, we took it from the British that we Americanized it. So we put our own American uh, spin of prejudice on it. And so instead of being uh, like original orcs and the Tolkien thing are sort of small, thin creatures, your typical orc in a Dungeons and Dragons world, it's gonna be this big, burly, martial, muscular creature it's not very smart but it's very uncanny i'm gonna go grab my monster manual right now to see if i can find an orc i, I think i think we also need to kind of just lay just for people who are who are not anthropologists or archaeologists or have any you know genetic background or whatever race is not real uh it is it is fully a social construct the things that we perceive of as race are they're basically just just common mm, physical traits among a, I can't think of a better word than breeding group, but that's that is kind of the word for it. I suppose uh, that's not that's not the right word though, is it? No, that's not the right it's word. The, mm, not community because it's more specific than that. Be very specific to a community, though. I mean, if you're using community in like the broad sense, or, that's why I say yeah. specific of ethnicity, because a lot of ethnicities have common physical traits. I'm thinking like, yeah. you know, European Jewish communities, and uh, you know, the obvious ones, African and Hispanic community ethnicities, and that kind of stuff. But though the the really tricky part with race is it's a complete social construct, and it will change depending on where you are in the world. Mm -hmm. But as far as being a social reality, race is very real oh, because sure. your your personal experience, your miles, your mileage will vary depending on what race you're perceived to be by the society or the culture group that you're in. So, you know, I can sit here and say race doesn't exist, and then somebody who's black is going to come up and be like, uh, "Excuse me," because <laughs> their whole their whole life is defined by right their race i mean yeah they're race, completely socially constructed here in america but it's because it's, it's, it's yeah it's it's, it's it's two things happening simultaneous yeah. one it's not it doesn't exist two it is real right in that it has an effect on your life i mean the way to think about it is the economy is a social construction the economy yeah. doesn't exist there is no such thing as money money is just a a name we we ascribe to an idea if this, if I were to walk out of here and say, well, money doesn't exist, it's not real, they're still going to want my car payment at the end of the month. It has or still has a very much real effect on my day-to-day -day life. Agreements we've created. Um, you know, race is a social construction with, with, that, that feed into systems of power. 
within our society. Uh, and they are made up out of whole cloth. They are imagined, probably the best way of putting it. They, they are imagined constructs, but they are very much real. People live, people die because of, 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 of concepts such as race. So we don't want, we don't want to diminish it in, in that way, shape or form. We want to make sure if you take away nothing else, that it is not natural in any way, shape or form. We are yeah. trying to denaturalize this concept for you. It is, there's nothing innate about, you know, anything you've ever heard about, well, you know, black people can do this and Asian people are good at that and white people can do that. That's all BS. But on a systemic level, is, is, your, is your race going to directly impact, potentially directly impact your life? Yes. Now, but as you were saying, this does go back to the more serious topic of gaming. Especially when it comes to, yeah, oh, I beat you to it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the whole idea of race is real in most fantasy style D&D games, or that was redundant, but anyway. So, would you call a D&D a raced realist game? I don't know what raced realism is. It's just racist. It's, it's, a, it's a white nationalist term, it's, it's, it's soft white, white nationalism. They try to like in the same sense that American culture in general is white nationalist. Yeah, and they're not. Let's stop using nationalists. They're not nationalists. They're supremacists. They're white supremacists. Concept that they want America white like anyway. Back to works. Back to works. Back to works. Yeah, but the, the 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 actual mechanics of fantasy style games, even in uh, if people who aren't playing tabletop games, even if you're playing video games, a lot of times like you have to select your character's race or species, and you get racial bonuses based on what you pick. And it, some races are better at magic, and some races are better at heavy weapons, and some races are better at I don't know digging holes. And within the I mean, like, well, how do people play dwarves because they like to be able to drink other people under the table? Like, what are you saying about dwarves, man? But yes, I think it, it's very sad to say, but I think racism is inherent to role-playing games, but I don't think role-playing games are racist. Does that make sense? I think, in, in, I think it's, it's, it's the same kind of argument I was making before in the sense that Amer um, American culture is not, it's, it's built on a racist concept or was built by, or in, in a racist concept. And therefore subconsciously, it's always going to have some, some remnant of that without very drastic uh, intervention. It, I mean, it, yes. So to bring in a little, <laughs> so, so to bring in a little critical theory here, because if we're going to discuss serious things like orcs, you must bring in critical theory. It would be safe to say then that you know, things like like uh, role playing games are always already racist because they are within the superstructure uh, of of a, of a white nationalist system or a racist okay. system in general. So it's not inherently or intentionally. This is not a, a condemnation of any of the creators, including Tolkien. It's it's more of a reflection of the society. You know, like all art, all art is a reflection of the societal times in which it is created. And art is a great barometer of judging what were social norms and acceptabilities during a particular time and place. So 
like any art, Dungeons & Dragons reflects that art of the late 20th century, the United States, coming right out of the civil rights era, a very tense time. So it's, it's, it's going to be baked in, even if no one along the chain ever intended to be for it to be there. Um, uh, yes. Jump in, babe. All right, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm taking it all in. Also, it's still a little early here. You could draw a Ford while you're doing it. So a proper, oh, yeah. a, a more modern uh, interpretation of, of an orc, maybe a more, you know, where to step forward. Is I, th I think Ford's a good representation of like the, what can we do from this point? Ford is a character on the uh, streaming show Critical Role, who's a half orc. You, which is a whole And, and uses a very... Yeah, that yeah that that gets discussed pretty heavily in the, in the articles that you posted. I was really um, confused by those articles. I'm not gonna lie, because like he kept saying that you can't play orcs and you can't play half orcs, and I, I think every game I've ever been in, someone has played an orc, or at least a half orc. Yeah, well, the, the the half orc has been in there for a while, but the but the whole concept is like orcs and goblins are inherently evil and and cannot really be played as. As as normal player characters has is starting to go away for sure at least as as part of the mainstream use of the game. There was also the problem since orcs themselves were not normally uh, player characters. Even in fifth edition player's handbook, they're not a regular player character. You need to get Volo's guide. I'm just showing off how many goddamn D and D books I have <laughs> um, to actually get the rules for uh, orcs as a playable character. So the implication was also always. Never explicit, uh, but the implication was always there that half orcs themselves were products of some sort of sexual violence. Uh, yeah. Was sort of always implied there, which also plays into some of these other racial stereotypes, which first existed, or not, not first existed, which exist in Europe towards people of the East and the United States towards people of African descent. They sort I of like they're coming for they're coming for our women type of uh, stereotypes. I, I mean, had that's still kind of a experience thing. with role playing than y'all have, I think, because like I never picked up on that as a gamer, and my parents were gamers, so like I've never picked up on that. I think, I think it's also the it really depends on the type of people that you play with, because in the in the in the article he talks about a, a, like a play test for fifth edition before it actually came out, and like the the DM was pushing real hard for basically not not using orcs as player characters and then not you know and and not considering them even as people because there's like towards the end of the description there's a they're, they're like they there's like the, the orcs are uh, there's like orc raiders or something they have to go right you know bust them out of this cave or whatever and at the end of it there's like orc children cowering in the corner and one of them like goes up and kills one yeah one of the other player characters yeah. uh, kills an orc child and so right. the guy playing is like roll initiative he's ready to throw <laughs> and then the dm closes down the, the the game right then yeah and the dm yeah the dm completely shuts it down but i think but i think that's also not the i don't know i don't know if that is a common right i mean it sounds like a bad experience team. among that sounds like a yeah. bad there's that one guy, and it's usually the guy in every group who's just like the secret psychopath so that sounds like you know that's what that guy was or there's always somebody who's got to be extra i mean there's always i mean the beauty of our play role playing is that there's so many different kind of people and so many people get different things out of it there are people who 
who play the game for the role-playing experience and to get right. deep into their character and explore right. myths. Other players are trying to min-max their stats completely yeah. so they can have as much, be soaked in as much blood by the end of the session. Well, you and have to win. The they, game, are the right? they are the murder. They have to win the game. They are the murder <laughs> over. No winning role-playing. You walk into the store and the uh, shopkeeper says, hello, your mage throws a fireball inside and blows everybody up. Look, that only happens. You lose the place. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, though, I think we've stepped away a little bit, you know, kind of put a lot of the onus on the player. But, you know, ultimately, when it comes down to it's more of a critique of the system itself. And so far as we were saying, you know, society, you know, race being a construct and it being upheld, you know, within that given, you know, social sphere. If you look at D&D as a system in a whole, it works kind of on in essence, categories and binaries, you know, yeah. good versus evil. And, you know, what is your alignment? And you've given a race, in essence, an evil alignment. And that's what in part comes out in that article is the fact that you, we have as a whole within this D&D system, orcs are bad. And we've given them no agency in that whatsoever. <laughs> and I think an important distinction that sort of like absolves, uh, would, would not absolve, harm in the designs of these things is that they mean race by the fact that these different races, or at least some of them in game, are allowed to procreate internally with, with viable offsprings, implying that they are of the, of the same species, but different races of, or at least neighboring species. So that, you know, at least in the base game, humans, elves, and orcs are all of the same species just different races of that where one is held as more intelligent and beautiful and grace aligned with the with the elves and the and the orcs are some sort of warlike creatures which aren't even worthy of being a playable character in the other ones you know you're sort of half orc which of course you know that uh, that also brings up uh, a troubling uh descriptions for anyone who who is a mixed race uh descent the, the sort of the the lack of better terms and the only way i know how to describe it in Amer an american which is i know so i apologize now would be the concept of the half breed where it's it's, it's the sort of liminal person who is out who is an out who is an internal outsider uh you see a lot in sort of american western motif you have the person who is maybe half half native american half white who is sort of your gateway character between those two worlds but in the end doesn't belong to either one so that's that's sort of the what that sort of what you hear that half thing that's what that archetype uh, brings to mind. I think part of the issue going back to um, critiquing the game itself is, like Amma was saying, the 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 necessary duality and the the black and white nature of it. You are good. You are evil. I mean, yeah, your your alignments span you know true new or true good all the way to true evil, and you know you can be neutral in between, but and most people prefer to play a neutral style character, at least in the groups that I've run in. But the game, the game really encourages you to pick one side over another. I think this is why it, I prefer, you know, once once I got done playing D and D as a kid, I, I really started to enjoy the White Wolf games when they started coming out. And I'm sure there's a whole conversation that we could have had about those, but White Wolf was the first gaming system that I encountered where you you didn't necessarily there was a stereotype 
and the stereotype existed because that was what everybody was, what everyone society thought of this group. And you were encouraged to create a character within that, that stereotype group, but you were encouraged to make your character an individual because part of the, the whole point of the game was there isn't black and there isn't white. The game was all about the shades of gray in between. It was just also a horror-based game. So, you know, there were, there were monsters and, I mean, you played werewolves and vampires and, and mages and fairies. So, I mean, it's like not grounded in reality at all. But you weren't, you didn't have to pick a species or a race. You could play non-binary characters. And actually, as the game matured, along with the player base, you know, you, you did start to see actual rules for generating non-binary characters and you know there's no such thing as racial racial stats white wolf there is bonuses for the type of monster you are like if you're a vampire you get different bonuses than the werewolf so i guess that's still there that's a very different like like mechanic though and even even socially because you're not you're not just inherently that thing. You like I, right. well, I, I don't I don't know a lot of the the lore behind White Wolf, but like for vampires and and werewolves or whatever, they're they're more things that are like they're not inherent. They're like a curse, or you're you're you know brought into society or whatever you know whatever whatever group you wanna you wanna go into that. So it's it's still it still pulls you away from that that you know that that idea that this is. This is just who you are because of who you, how you were born. It's but you know, and like, I the point of White Wolf was to rage against the thing that everybody said you have to be, you know, and, and you can embrace it if you want. To. I mean, it's your character, or whatever. You can do what you want. D and D is set up in a way that, like, you know, we were talking about Drow earlier. Like, what the hell are Drow? And we're like, oh, they're the fallen and the cursed. And Drow are inherently evil. And that's why characters like Drizzt and some of the other more famous NPC drows are so cool because they're rebelling and they're they're breaking away from the evil and redeemed. And it's also about where you know where they're from. Those characters are typically from a place in the game world called the underworld. It's a place underground. They they are they are shy away from the light. They are the the repelled things, and all things that are deep in the earth are evil. Right. Exactly. Because we all lives in the ground right but i think something, something interesting though i mean i don't know if we if we are going to have the answer for this it's interesting though that dungeons and dragons is the behemoth though in the world of tabletop role-playing i'm familiar with the white wolf i haven't really played it that much i played the game a little bit and i'm trying to start playing it again before the new game comes out the video yeah, game the new system but i would definitely like to play it maybe we'll have a one shot or a new uh, maybe season two of our thing we'll we'll try a different system and we'll all be, you know, vampires. We're not. I haven't played a good vampire game in forever, so I'm down. But it's it's the mechanics of Dungeons and Dragons that you see in so many other other types of tabletop role-playing games, other types of video games. The entire RPG genre is 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 in some way, shape, or form variations of the D and D model, even like your Final Fantasies. And your JRPGs play upon a lot of these D and D style style myths, so it has long legs. So it, I think it is still interesting, sort of, to the, the, the critique 
the structural underpinnings of this. And I, and I like how this is all focused strictly on the orc, because you could probably do this about sort of all the character races in there. But by sort of like paying attention to the orc, it gives you that time to sort of sit there and think about it and to sort of go on there. So like what Ama's drawing right now, the big guy in the middle is a typical how a uh, fifth edition orc would look like where the, the the more the more slight guy in the on the on the on the right who who still who still lifts okay he still lifts he's not that, he's that weak even if he is weaker than his uh even girlfriend. girlfriend or not girlfriend or not girlfriend not girlfriend y'all watch we, we watch way too much that show yeah i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> there's no uh, episode I mean, he's a half orc hang on ama's kind of famous Oh, she is super famous. Three times now? Twice? Three times? Three times. times her, her art has shown up on Critical Role now. Because so. it's good. It is good. <laughs> can't handle this. I'm, I'm aiming for four, let me tell you. This is the real All reason right. she's not putting the video up is because at this point she can't stand the fame. Yeah, right. She can't, <laughs> she can't be seen. Can't do it. Just can't do it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to add a human for comparison here too. Two guesses. I have no idea because I don't actually watch Critical Role. Oh, you need to. Well, you know when you put the, when you give him a cat or a uh, octopus goggles, I'll know. He's got he's got the holsters though. <laughs> I can't. I, I don't have time between watching. It's a lot of time. And like. All the other dumb things I have to watch. Plus, I have to read all this, all these books. You guys have There's, to read books. Well, the books that you're reading are terrible. <laughs> oh. I will have you know, I didn't suffer as much as I thought I would reading America or before. But once I figured out that, like, I didn't need. Okay, so you know. Okay, so let's now officially pivot to third topic: the Graham Hancock experience. Oh, Sorry, it's been my life for the last two weeks. Was that a part of Graham Hancock and the Joe Rogan experience, or just? <laughs> I he was even... he was on Joe Rogan recently. Several times he's been on Joe Rogan. Him, him and Joe Rogan's are, are are like best buds, from what I can tell. I'm surprised you didn't hear like slurping noises when he's on that show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so really quickly just because i i do want to reorient it back to D D. how do you think this impacts the our game that is currently in planning well one is directly impacted it in the way that i think we are currently leaning towards a single species which may have cultural variation but we're not going to play with these different at least initially, we're not going to play with the ideas that they're elves and they're and they're dwarves and other types of quote unquote races. They will be people. Now they might not be people who look like you or me, but they will still be people. And uh, and working from there. So I think that initially, that's that's the biggest one initially. I think. I think oh, sorry. Go ahead. And oh. The other idea is sort of taking what's what Sarah was going is that we're. Um, leaning very heavily to the idea of flattening, like there's no, there will be no racial bonuses. There might be class bonuses based upon, and we might. I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to maybe uh, orchestrate these things, you know, class bonuses and how that might, you know, balance the game. I mean, I'm not going to try to balance the game. 
but there, there will be no. Are we trying to keep this in D and D roll twenty system? At this point, still trying to keep it in D and D roll twenty system because I think it's a little too challenging to try to create create an entire new system or use an entire new system that I have not played. See, um, and this is why I like the White Wolf system because it's d10 based and you roll a number of dice according to the well at least it used to be when i played it you roll a number of dice equal to your pips your dice pool and you don't you can get bonuses depending on if you buy like a background or a feat or something but for the most part you build your character on from your point pool and I know there's a, something very similar in Roll20 where instead of just rolling the dice, you can actually like assign points. And that might be the way to go, you know, have, uh, have a point-based system and just allow people to put the points where they want them to go. Or have something like, you know, I mean, I could see like a cultural bonus when it comes to certain things. Like, do you know how to use a bidet? <laughs> Nope. I'm just saying. So I'm I'm gonna send this out as a as a direct message to all of you watching us. If you know of any sort of like open source role playing system, fates, open worlds, things like that that you think would would uh, be a better fit for what we are trying to do from the two seconds we actually talk about our own game uh, on this uh, show, uh, please leave a comment. Either leave it now or leave it out. You know, we the comments will still be open. Uh, when this gets posted as an uh, upload to the site, and please let us know. So anyway, let's get back to trying to figure out what the hell we're going to do. <laughs> well, I think um, I think that I'll, I do have one suggestion for that one actually is, and I think it is open source, but uh, Dungeon World as a as a mechanic is supposed to be a lot more story based. In the like, there's no as far as I know, there's no like you don't have there's no reason that you have to use the racial bonuses or racial mechanic at all. Yeah, I'm currently reading about the Fate system. So Fate, Fate Core, it's a D6 based system. There really aren't things like stats. Uh, it's a it's a it's an agnostic system, so it can go anywhere from high fantasy to crime, you know, modern crime drama type of thing. So it, it's 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 really an open system. The whole thing is whether or not we could adapt it and make it you know, comfortable enough to adapt it in there. Plus, I kind of want, still want to do season one within the world of D and D because it's the behemoth, it's the big boy, it's the That's it's the most problematic, and you know why not just dive in head first and smash your head against the wall in the starter set. So, Amma, what were you saying? I was, I was, I was going to play devil's advocate here just because. Oh, well, never. Got, no, no, it's, I, I think I think it's important to consider because. Are, are we also falling into a trope by saying, why don't we deconstruct this and remove the concept of race from D&D? I mean, I, I don't, I, there is an opportunity to kind of either, you know, not necessarily deconstruct the system in a way, but but analyze it through role play. You know, I think it's just something that I want to put forth there. The idea that we're sticking to one race means that we've kind of avoided, you know, that that as like a topic of conversation, both in game and out of game. Do you think it's something where potentially we could bring it back in and, and you know, in some way, shape or form, I've seen it discussed before, like in Critical Role with with uh, Ford's character specifically. I just wanted to put that out there because we've had these discussions before off camera, but I think it's also something good to have 
in chat here as well. Now, without point. Well, yeah, I think it's really valid. Yeah. So our version point zero zero one, when I first came up with an idea, was basically taking everything that exists in Dungeons and Dragons world and transferring that onto seventeenth century Chesapeake Bay. Uh, mm. So all things including colonialism, slavery, native relations, and all of that were all going to occur in that space. It soon became apparent that that was a little too ambitious for my very first foray into this. That may be a future campaign you might see down the road in season five uh, mm. of our little thing. But right now, that's a little too ambitious of a goal. Now, not to give away too much about what I'm currently planning. Uh, for our game world, but this kind of goes into another topic that I was sort of planning on, sort of where we are at right now, or at least where I'm at right now in planning the game world. <laughs> so right now, I have the 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 creatures, uh, the people of this world will be, will be called the uh, Baryen, B-A-R-Y-E-N. Don't worry about names. They are subject to change without notice. They're going to be modeled after the Tiefling. And I think we talked about the Tiefling last episode, and, and Alma drew some, drew some very nice pictures of Tiefling. Uh, oh, I don't know if the, I called them nice, but yes. <laughs> All of your works are masterpieces. They're better than five thousands. Yes. But these, these are a, a group of people who, through the ingesting of a material, a, a mineral, a spice, as it were, called uh, Maggio, have recently discovered that that is the source of their sort of magical abilities. They have the magical abilities you find in a fantasy world. Um, and they find that it's a, that it has a physical cause from the spice. So the spice. More, so more and more recently, it's been discovered that the spice can also be used to fuel things like to power things like lights and trains and things and also run machines so, so with that about 30 years before this campaign starts this small little nation uh called aura all names subject to change i see you ama uh all names subject to change without notice had colonized this island insula martello which has large resources uh, of maggio on it and so we were, we're going to begin the campaign about 30 years later, where the dictator of Aura, a uh, Patrabara, Barry, wants to, is, is in trouble with some of the other countries on the continent of Taro. It sounds so pretentious fantasy stuff right now, but that's what this is. We're not laughing at you. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm also, that's why I'm highlighting the Amazon drawing. All right. He rolls the spice, controls the universe. Fear is the mind killer. <laughs> That'll be season three spoilers. I can't think of anything else good from Dune. <laughs> we already did, we already did all the ones I know. His water belongs to you now. <laughs> so this island uh, has been colonized. There's a, a single port city. There's the only one city on this island, uh, Haven Testudo, which has been the treaty port uh, of this area, and we're, you know, it has been determined that by the by the dictator of the country of Aura that they need to better legitimize their claim. Like right now, they only have the claim to the island through use of force, and some of the other neighboring nations are beginning to 
desire this this island for themselves. So they are in the process of trying to legitimize their claim through things like, you know, maybe finding evidence that the previous occupants of this island happen to be descendants of the uh, Byron. <laughs> and so in the past few years, uh, the, the uh, characters in this will be the second class, re- graduating class from the military academy who have been especially trained as historic resource professionals, and they are being sent on their first mission to the island to first conduct an archaeological survey of an area between the port town and... This is like hard to keep up with the drawings. This means it's good drawings. Uh, Between here and the port town and the Great Desert, and then after they've conducted a sort of a simple survey to cross the Great Desert and join up with the previous class here, who should hopefully be conducting an excavation of a loss, you know, uh, of settlements on the other side of the desert, which which uh, to this point, uh, no one has, uh, has visited yet. So that's sort of the, the rough plot, the rough plot of the, uh, the game so far. So, we're not Nazis. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I was saving that up about episode six. You can have the scene where you're sitting around the campfire, and you look around each other and go, "Are we the baddies?" <laughs> yeah, because I'm definitely trying to draw some of the gray area ambiguity into this gaming world. Okay. okay. Good. I want to yeah, but go yeah, but okay. So I like it. I really do. I think you're. I think it's fun. One, if you want to run a Cthulhu game, just fucking run a Cthulhu game because like <laughs> there's enough racial shit in those. We could be there for years. Two, if I had played, if I really knew the called Cthulhu system, that would be totally what we're doing. I, it's not hard. Well, okay, you go crazy. That's the end. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing the Call of Cthulhu video game right now. Oh, I haven't bought that yet. Don't, don't, dang The older one or the newer one? The newer one. I have the older one too. And I also have the two older, older ones, these sort of point and click adventure games. Oh, man. All right. Anyway, my other thing is, is to go back to what Ama was saying earlier about the, the, the mono racing, the D&D game. I, I do think, I, I want to build on what she was saying. I do think we are missing out on the uh, opportunity to interact with a, a safe space for racial interactions basically well, i think it and to address and to address the granddaddy because like the reason D is one of the heavy hitters is because i think it's what one of two games that were created roughly about the same time and it's the only one that survived and has influenced every other freaking game since i mean even white wolf's influenced by D. Well, to sort of, well, actually, you're, yeah, but. <laughs> um, Don't you well, actually, me. I dig my shirt. Oh, hold on. <laughs> well, actually. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've opened the door. Is that there are definitely going to be different cultures initially that you're going to find in here. The, the, you have the nation of Aura. Which is a colonizer. There are other there are other nations on this continent with other peoples on board who have different cultural sets. This <clears> island is also going to have native or natives 
populations uh, on it, which are going to have to be interacted with. There are going to be a colonized people, so there will be interaction there. There is opportunity, without giving away too much, there's potential opportunity for the ambitious player to potentially play one of these indigenous characters. This is a terrifying. Who may or who may or may not let the party initially know that they are. I I I'm not saying I'm not. And as far as the full blown world of Dungeons and Dragons, I just wanted to get the last part out. (laughs) (laughs) You got to get across the desert. (laughs) Don't walk with rhythm. You got to walk with that rhythm. Like there are there are no such things as mythical animals or creatures. There's no weird giant spiders or anything in this world. But there are rumors of things like that on the other side of the desert. So I do have to walk with that rhythm. No, I'm just saying, like I'm all for the homebrew. I really am, because I, I like homebrews. They're a lot more flexible. I run a homebrew. I, I enjoy Don't you take your headphones off, you get back here. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm coming back because I I have your potential uh, alternative in my hand. No, I, don't, I don't want an alternative. I'm just saying that, like, I I think we should move forward with the game that we've been doing with Tomog and Arnell and I'm sorry, Ama, I forgot your character's name. Hi. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think we should go forward with that, and I think we should explore, you know, race a little bit more. We've got the the races in D and D, and the implications of the racism of Dan of D and D. Because I don't know, I just think I think I think maybe we're like skirting it. I really do. Now that almost brought it up that way, I think maybe we really are trying to take the easy way out by just eliminating race in general. However, I'm all for a big culture game because I love I loved playing Seventh Seas. Love the fact that they basically it's like I think it's the game you're getting ready to show me too. It was the predecessor to that. No, no, no. This is still a D and D. Okay. But there is a D and D module. Which explores all of this, all of what we're talking about. It's sort of the the book I've been dancing around while trying to put all this together. This is what introduces the the background of archaeologists uh, to Dungeons and Dragons. This takes place on on an exotic peninsula, which is basically a a pseudo Mayanist culture uh, hidden in the jungles. I mean, we can if we play this module, we are diving straight into that world without necessarily having to do a lot of the background work other than play it do they have psychic powers um have they harnessed nuclear energy and are they grooming more primitive culture groups to worship them as gods so that when the great cataclysm comes um their knowledge will be passed on via giant stone buildings it's been my life there is a disease which is uh, which is making all creatures who have been risen from the dead slowly die wait, without wait. without the possibility of resurrection pandora's box <laughs> wait what um within this world there's a there's a special condition within this module there's a special condition where let me see if i can write on the back here so i'm not doing too much a death curse has befallen everyone who has been raised from the dead oh. victims are rotting away with all efforts to reverse the decay have failed with a top line here saying welcome to the jungle <laughs> souls of the dead are being stolen one by one and entrapped inside a necromantic artifact 
Only its destruction will free the trapped spirits and allow the dead to be raised once more. All paths lead the cult or chult, a mysterious land of volcanoes, jungles, and the ruins of fallen kingdoms. Below them all awaits a deadly tomb. The trap is set. Will you take the bait? I mean, I already took the bait. I mean, let's do this. So, yeah, we could just run uh, Tomb of Annihilation. Let's go I mean, that, that would be good because you can hit both kind of the, the critique of, of the system of, of race within the game, but then also the kind of archaeology component within D&D as well. Yeah. Yay, this saves or, 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 I should do, or I should do a full Matt Mercer right here. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That's good. Everybody, I'm oh, happy. Oh, no, you keep making your game because, like you said, there could be multiple seasons. Absolutely. Yeah, hours of work. That's fine. That's fine. I'm okay. <laughs> you build this game, Bill. This is, you don't let anybody tell you your game isn't valid. This is this is uh, this is for any budge, budging uh, D dungeon masters, game masters out there. This is the world you you have stepped into. You <laughs> cannot hold anything precious. It's kind of like being a writer. You have to your precious. Un, unlike a writer, though, you don't get to kill your precious. Sometimes your players <laughs> do it for you. I was say, as a writer, you have to kill your darlings. As a storyteller, people will kill them for you. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's fine. Um, actually, that works out a lot better. That's going to help prepping a lot better. It will make it interesting, though, for planning so once again we're getting behind the scenes stuff here so the initial plotting plan was that we would be recording sessions maybe like once a month that would be lasting a single four-hour session and only having our campaign last approximately 28 episodes which is one two three four five six seven which would be seven episodes with seven uh, sessions I like how you think we're going to make it through each one of those in a session. <laughs> hours plotting out each thematic beat of, of this thing. I don't, I don't have it outlined in, in detail. <laughs> you should not do that. I... <laughs> we're going to go rogue and go off on the best side quest ever that you do not have planned. Yeah, you know, I when I used to DM, or what I would do is just make an outline, kind of like a fractal tree, and just like have some possibilities, and then just wait for people to not do any of it. <laughs> well, the idea of this really <laughs> is the in, most attention to is going definitely going to be the thing no one will do. At the the, the idea behind all this was in, in an hour long session, how do I get this uh, whole thing campaign one done in like six months? You're cute. No, I mean, I, I don't, I don't mind, you know, having best laid plans, but kind of keeping it organic. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything goes away as soon as like I present the initial thing, and you're like, "Is that there's a cat over there? Is that a cat over there?" <laughs> we should have there. Cat <laughs> and now you are off. You know, you've... so. And now we're doing dream uh, of Catholic. No, no, no. I'm getting my Lovecraft all confused now. I'm all welcome to Lovecraft world. Yes, so I'm I'm falling right in. Um, racist trope. I mean, I mean, if we we want to tackle racist tropes. We dive into Lovecraft. That's what I'm saying. I think, I'm gonna do racism. I mean, just just go for but the. I think in D and D, I think uh, Tomb of Annihilation is definitely the one we should do. If we don't get anything else, we should do that one while I'll overlooking. 
these are the ones, depending on how ambitious we want to get uh, as time goes on. Is this one of those books that we all need to buy, or is it okay? No, 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 no one else should buy because it has the uh, all the, everything in it. Okay, okay. Uh, where's the cartographer one in? That was a, um, a something I found on DMs Guild, and we, deal, we could definitely tweak this thing. We can homebrew a, around the edges. Say we want to use our modified archaeologist background rather than the Indiana Jones Laura Croft one that's included in the book. We can do that. Or we can, subclass, isn't it? Or we can look right into it. There's a rogue subclass which is an archaeologist. Um, that cartographer if you really want to play that cartographer we can we can we can get that cartographer in there i was just looking i mean it looked good and that's that's kind of what i was trying to go for with uh rnl i was trying to right. do uh, the cartography that's why i was like she's drawing maps so that's why i was doing with that but if there's already stats for it i mean maybe we should just adjust our characters that we've already got yeah you don't have to have things available to us we can do like any, Kamog doesn't get to change at all. Like any good <laughs> legend, My. your characters can be this. <laughs> like um, I'm trying to think of what what stories would fall under this, where it's the same, <laughs> it's the same people, but they're entirely different. Oh, um, um an, an alternate universe. AU. AU's AU. universe. I was thinking like Stephen King's Desperation and um, what's the other one? The one that takes place in suburbia. The two okay. books that go back, they wrote, came out at the same time. You stop with your highbrow horror fantasy and you listen to us fanfic people. It's a, called an AU, okay? <laughs> <laughs> There's a word for it. There's a word for it already, Bill. Yeah, but Stephen King already did it. <laughs> did Stephen King invent the AU? I don't think so. DC Comics did it a while ago. That's fair. That is completely fair. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? I recently saw How an many... article that they found like what was it that 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 people were taking Dante and writing their own like fanfics for it or something oh, like yeah. that. Dude, there is fanfic. I mean, that makes I, a lot of sense actually. I'm not even... like back in the day. There is fanfic of the Bible. Yeah, I mean, Judeo-Christian fanfic is pretty. That's that's. I mean, that's essentially the basis for Supernatural. You want to you want to have your head really blown open? There's slash fic for the Bible. I, I, oh, no, you just need to read the Old Testament <laughs> right there for you, man. All right, cool. Well, I guess. Things exist. Oh, what? So, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> isn't that a rule? What is it? Rule sixty-nine. Well, no, I don't think. Rule thirty-four of the year. If it yeah, exists, it there there is porn of it on the internet. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 horrid. Don't look it up. <laughs> Any but, of this stuff up. But if you do look it up, look up Clippy, the nice little clip. Please uh, don't know. No. 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 Stop. No. Stop. It, it, it exists. Just <laughs> because it exists doesn't mean you should go look it up. <laughs> I was watching a video earlier today about how Nintendo is allowing like M-rated games. From third parties, Ooh. where Sony, where Sony's still restricting it. Yeah, video game nerd time. Nerd. Yeah, you really need to get your situation sorted out. So I spend way too much time at home. <laughs> the new Sims game dropped, and you can play a trans character, which I'm still very confused about. Not the trans thing. It's just like you've always been able to play a trans character in Sims. It's just now they're announcing that you can do it. And I'm, only, I'm just very confused by it. It's I, like, I'm trying to think how mechanically that's different than what you 
could only it, there is no game mechanic difference between <laughs> how you have always been able to create a character in Sims and your ability to have trans characters in Sims now. There is no difference. Can you still have them die by putting them into a room with no door and with no access to a bathroom? Yes. How There's a very I know, yeah. Put them in a pool, take out the, the ladder. No, they can crawl out of the pool now. Oh, man. What? They, yeah, they, they, learned, they learned from three to four. Yeah, they, they crawl out of, they can get in and out of, actually, like, there's only two diving boards. Most pools don't even have them. You just get in and out of the pool like a normal person. <laughs> Good normal. I also don't think I've played The Sims since its original iteration. The first Sims? Yeah. There's I think that's the last time I played it. There's some beautiful, there's some beauty in the first Sims. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, coming back to inclusivity and, and just like awkwardness, like the whole Sims 4 thing and Pride Month and the whole like, they completely forgot to put the lesbian flag in the game, which isn't that big of a deal until you realize that they went out of their way to put every other Pride flag in and then just completely forgot about the lesbian flag. I, um, I have my new Critical Role uh, flag t-shirt I put on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, I was going to wear it tonight, but I got caught up in the uh, jingoism of the U.S. women winning the semifinals and wearing my shirt. The U.S. Yeah. soccer team, women's soccer team, is boss. My favorite headline of the year, purple-haired lesbian. Uh, oh, man, now I forgot the headline. Darn it. It's getting late. I think we're near. I think we're running near the end. It was a good one, though. Yeah. She's awesome, though. Yeah. Her hair was amazing and she looked fantastic doing it. Oh, that pose? Oh, my God, please. And that was the one that was like, I don't want to get into politics. But anyway, that that has a really fun headline, too. Yes. Okay. Um, I think we've uh, we've accomplished a lot tonight. And we're going to. I think my brain farts are letting me know that I'm sort of winding down at this point. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, does anybody, unless anybody else has a, like, something they've been like chewing at the bit for and want to get out, I will just, I'll be quiet and let you guys go over it. Otherwise, <laughs> oh, uh, I've got one thing, and I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to blast this out everywhere that I can right now. We're trying to put together. If you, if you are part of a community archaeology or public archaeology program or you know someone that is, please get in touch with me or with archaeology in the community. We are trying to put together a video panel for SHA next year. Uh, we have about two weeks to find a couple more people. We've got a handful right now, but we'd like some more. But uh, send them our way if you know of anybody that might be interested in doing a video for a community archaeology or public archaeology program. Have you reached out to... Uh... Uh, archaeology for autism? No. I will look into that. I don't think that's the actual name. I'll have to look into it. I, 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 I think I know what you're talking about, and I don't... I, I honestly don't exactly know what it is that they do. So that would be a good thing to look into. Okay. I, I think they just do community archaeology projects that are geared for people and, and specifically children on the spectrum because the guy who founded it, his son is on the spectrum. And so he, and his son really likes archaeology. So he was like, here, let's combine two things. We interviewed him once for the CRM archaeology show way back in the day. And he was a really cool guy. So God, I wish I could remember the name of his. I follow him on Twitter. 
Anyway. I'll figure it out. Let's see. Oh, and also, if you aren't tired of seeing my face or, or Sarah's face, if you're watching this live, you can jump over to the Archie Fantasies channel tomorrow. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we've got the uh, archaeology problem. Or the archaeology. Wow, you can tell what I'm doing. I think we've got the internet issue. I move, if people don't know, and internet always fucks up when you move, so... So hopefully, keep an eye on Twitter. You should be able to see us tomorrow watching, I'll call it pseudo-archaeology right off the bat. I don't care. I have no idea what it's about. I know the title of the episode is The Spy Who Saved America. I have no idea what that has to do with geology. I guess we'll find out. It's probably another Jack the Ripper episode. But I mean, if you solve Jack the Ripper, he can solve, you know, spying in the United States, so. And and Alma and Tom, you are both welcome to join us if you want. I can I can send you the link, and we can all watch it together at noon. I'll be at working. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll probably be. Alma, it's only it's only midnight for you. Right. And, <laughs> actually, one one a.m. One a.m. <laughs> and Alma, do you want to plug anything like your Instagram, where people can see your featured art? <laughs> leaving your art so we can put it in the show notes or just go to critroll.com for the no, fan gonna... art gallery it's going to be on there all the time I want to shot this shit right here there we go take that uh oh what's going on I don't understand Just sold, oh, no. I stole your soul oh no um, well, actually, I've been archiving all these files, so I've actually got the the drawings from what I drew in the last. Uh, good. Cast cool. and so, I've got as well. so this is a good time to mention we have a website www.archeorpg.com. We are on Instagram at archeorpg. We are on Twitter. We have a Gmail account if you want to ask any questions at archeorpg at gmail.com and obviously the YouTube channel you're watching us on, please subscribe there. So when it's not my own, uh, it's hopefully sometime the next week-ish or two, maybe three, uh, we can move beyond just my one post on our blog, which is my original attempt at what this was going to be two years ago, which was just me doing deep dives into Dungeons and Dragons video games. I was doing like Curse of Azure's Bond, and I was doing going to do a deep dive of, of playing it, and then also doing long form articles on the blog about that. That never took off the ground because it was like work. <laughs> so what we can do though is do things like feature some of the featured work artwork uh, that we did have done here on the show, and things like mm -hmm. that. So and uh, maybe other writings from other members of the. Uh, Archeo RPG Collective. If that's that's who we are. We could do a thing. We could do a thing. We, are, we you can tell we are a top-notch professional organization. <laughs> Wait, and... what? I, I what? No, no professional organizations. Those always go badly. No, no, we're an artist collective, which means is we're just going to be catty all the time. Snaps <laughs> fingers. Does that mean I need to start writing fanfic about our our group? We have a dormant blog that really isn't doing much, so we could probably use our inter self-referential fanfic, the best kind. They call those. Yeah. 
I'm sure there's a name for this. Was that? I call it a Mary Sue. <laughs> I was gonna say, shouldn't shouldn't you save that for? Uh, I thought that was. I thought that only applied to movie characters who happen to be women. Oh no. <laughs> we'll oh. save that. That's a topic for a different day. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm gonna go after this is done. I'm gonna watch the dudes only cut of uh, Avengers <laughs> Endgame that's online. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't watched it yet, you need to watch the first How It Should Have Ended take for the end game. It's on YouTube. The guy does some really funny shit. And I guess he's, spoilers, I guess he's making fun of the all women scene that occurs. And then Captain Marvel walks up and just like, this isn't actually in the movie. This is how he has it, how it should have gone. And then Captain Marvel walks up and just like annihilates everybody with her blast beam. And then she's like, oh, oh yeah, sorry. Woo, go girls. And then walks off. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Okay. Well, I, th I think that about wraps it up for this time. For two, uh, see us again two weeks from now. Hopefully we'll be back in our regular Thursday slot. I say mm -hmm. it's like we've done more than two episodes. Uh, <laughs> it July, will be regular. July 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, which would be O.00 in the UTC or Greenwich Mean Time, or and then do your math from there. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Of healing. I love it. Darn it, I had a really good indie line last time, but... Um... <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>